Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, a look at the week ahead. But first, on Friday, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, as well as governments around the world, issued alerts that Log4j, a widely used Java logging library used by Apple, Twitter, uh, and the popular game Minecraft by Microsoft, uh, has a vulnerability, a vulnerability that can be exploited by regular folks, not just hackers. You can take control of a server by sending malicious code that's logged by the 2.0 version or higher of Log4j, then loading an arbitrary Java code to that. Even though Java is less popular than it used to be, uh, a large part of our entire cyber uh, ecosystem depends on it. Joining us to discuss uh, this alert and what it means to aerospace and defense and how to correct it is John Co-Francesco of Fortress Information Security. Joko, thanks very much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. So talk to us a little bit about this uh, alert, right? It's not a breach. But it is a vulnerability that was un, uh, that was discovered and reported, right, as often as these are, by uh, Alibaba uh, engineers. There are some who are going to be suspicious that it was a Chinese, <laughs> a Chinese company that found this uh, vulnerability. But talk to us about the vulnerability and what it means, especially for aerospace and defense. So, Vago, this ultimately will be the largest vulnerability in history up till this point. And to put that in context, when I say largest vulnerability, that means ostensibly every single company that you've ever worked with or heard of has this vulnerability latent somewhere into their network. Now that for them is coming in one of two flavors. Either they're a software creator, so think Google, Amazon, Apple, and they've actually put this library into code that they've then distributed. And in fact, those companies have been affected. Or you're a consumer. That's so you're an aerospace company, you're Boeing, you're Airbus, you're Bombardier, uh, you've purchased something from one of these companies, and now you're totally at risk uh, because the world knows about this vulnerability. Of course, the, the adversaries of the West are working diligently over the weekend to see who they can hack and what they can take. Uh, and it has put uh, cybersecurity officials on notice, both that they need to be working right this second. Uh, to, to close up the vulnerabilities as they can find them. But second and more importantly, that vulnerabilities of this nature are not easily discovered unless you have what's called the software bill of materials. So huge issue going to affect everybody. And what we will see go forward, certainly for the next year, are a series of attacks where this particular vulnerability is used as the exploit uh, to get into various networks and systems. You know, how long have people been exploiting this because something this big is, right, it's baked into the software, right? The original, right? I mean, there's some original sin here, isn't there? So how long has this existed and how hard is it going to be to patch? So there's a couple questions written in there, Vago. And the first thing you really have to understand is how software is made. So I think for most people, it's uh, wizardry, right? Magic. Some guys go and, and mix some ingredients in a cauldron and pops out the newest uh, software tool. In reality, what's happening is you have teams of programmers, coders, engineers, architects getting together, following a very distinct project, a uh, very distinct process. And a big part of that process is typically the consumption and use of open source technology. So 
This particular uh, vulnerability came from an open source technology. Uh, and really what's happened here is people have baked up a poisonous vulnerability into their software. That's what's gone on. So in terms of the original sin, it will be hard to know exactly when this was introduced. Certainly there's going to be forensics conducted. My sneaking suspicion is one of two things will be true. Either it'll be completely accidental, although I think that's probably unlikely, or more likely uh, a ransomware or a nation state updated that software on a public site, probably GitHub, uh, and, and provided the vulnerable version out to the world and that we have been using it for months, perhaps over a year. In terms of finding what's been hacked, that's going to take a ton of time also because there are certainly ongoing breaches, uh, some of them which are, are starting right now that won't be discovered for some time, some of which probably happened months and months ago that uh, are still ongoing. This is going to take probably the good part of 22, perhaps even longer than all of 2022 to, to water out. In terms of patching, this is where the, the industry, and, and I say aerospace and defense, is an extreme vulnerability. And I certainly hope uh, that all the big companies were getting to work on the weekend. I can report to you, Vago, that all the big companies we've been working with have been engaged over the weekend, ostensibly because they're wholly dependent on their vendors to provide those patches because they don't have the ingredients list into, into what goes into the software they've been consuming. They don't have the ability to know what's vulnerable and what's not. So really, these folks are just waiting to be told, am I on the hook? Am I not? Uh, and you can actually see Jen Easterly from CISA put out a major message. And, and this is really a coup for Alan Friedman and some of the others who've been working on this, basically saying, hey, you need to act right now. But by the way, if we had SBOMs, software bill of materials in place, this wouldn't be nearly the big deal that it is. So I think ultimately what we're going to see now is some of the executive orders of the White House that have been previously signed are now going to come bear fruit very quickly as a result of this. Um, so uh, let me uh, let me pull on that a little bit. Right at the Sucker Punch uh, conference uh, earlier this year, right, SBOM was the big discussion. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, right, it's late at night. Everybody's busy. They're racing to get the software out. Uh, and they do to go to GitHub and they just copy and paste. And everyone said, right. And, and folks even were tongue in cheek a little bit, right? There are times when people have seen stuff written in Cyrillic and people copy and paste anyway, right? We have to get away from that. And that's what the, the SBOM is supposed to do. How do we get around this? Uh, because, right, there's a, a lot of debate about reporting standards, right? The Senate's not going along with the um, the language, uh, at least that was the case as of last week. Uh, we had Mark Montgomery uh, on um, the uh, senior advisor to the Cyberspace Solarium Commission talking about, you know, the, the, these reporting requirements are critical because sunshine is a disinfectant and that, you know, if you do have a problem, you should alert um, CISA. You should be alerting NSA so that we know we've got a problem. What are the specific things that need to happen? And what are the things, Joko, that lawmakers have to take seriously? Because there's this sense of, oh, you know, we don't want to burden small companies and the like. Well, hey, you know what? We all exist in the same cyber universe. And oftentimes it is the little guy who's targeted that has access to the secrets of the big guys, right? How do, how do we need to look at this fundamentally differently? Because this ecosystem has been playing a little bit faster and looser than I think even the people in the ecosystem want to admit that it has. So I think what we really need is a cultural change here. 
Uh, you know, I, I remember waking up 9-12 and America was engaged. We got it. The fight is on. And now we're going to have to fight back. And I think what, what I personally have learned and I think what we're witnessing here again and again and again is our adversaries have realized they can punch us straight in the face if it's not kinetic. So if it's kinetic, you're going to get a 9-12 response. But if it's a cyber attack, we just roll over. And the, the fact that the Senate was resistant to a really, really basic reporting requirement is baffling. I mean, at best, absolutely uh, negligent at worst, that we have to get into a war footing here, right? The, the time for the peacetime consigliere has ended. We need a wartime consigliere because the fact of the matter is our way of life is actively and under existential threat. Our adversaries understand if they can pick apart an election if they can raise chicken prices by attacking a chicken chicken plant, if they can raise oil prices by attacking an oil pipeline, that by small cuts, they can meaningfully change our way of life and they can induce behaviors on our part that puts, puts really Americans at the throat of other Americans. That's what we've seen go, go, going on here. We have to get leadership into the thinking that this is an ongoing, purposeful war footing sort of situation where our adversaries are taking us apart and we now need to take on the costs associated with fighting them back. We have to get into that place. Uh, elsewise, we are going to continue to lose. And, and as it relates to this, this is easily going to be the biggest vulnerability in history. Honestly, we should have seen something on the ilk of the president coming out and speaking on this. Now, I get it. Normal people aren't so technical. This uses a bunch of gobbledygook words nobody's ever heard of, but the practical reality is, is that we woke up Saturday morning knowing that a large percentage, say greater than 10%, probably less than 50, of the software we use every day is now vulnerable to hack. And without the reporting requirement, a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, we won't even have any idea how, how much we've been exploited, how much we've lost. So... Really what we need, Vago, is a cultural change, and I think that will yield, like the reporting requirements, like empowering certain uh, individuals within government and business to sort of take the right actions. But that, that cultural change, I think, is going to have to happen first. Um, in, in these open source software libraries, right? I mean, if the code is too good, uh, it is, uh, right? Uh, because ultimately, um, our adversaries are smart enough to know what kind of code to put up there and what kind of problems they're solving uh, that will be embraced by somebody who needs a fix to a, to a, to a problem in their code. And I should have mentioned that. Um, do So how do organizations need to approach this, uh, Joko, right? I mean, because this is now a triaging situation, right? Um, how, how do you approach this to make sure you're securing the right things in the right order, right? Because this is like a cooking recipe. Getting the order right matters. What what does the order need to be? Whether you're sitting in the Pentagon, where you're a CEO, uh, whether you're a you're a CISO or or anybody else. Well, first things first. You better make sure that your staff has been working over the weekend. And if they didn't start working over the weekend, somebody should be fired. Because even though it came out really uh, Friday afternoon, Saturday morning, this was the type of vulnerability that that the CISOs of the world should have been responding to instantly. I can tell you, we have been talking to folks left, right, and center over the weekend. We ourselves have been working uh, really without break over this weekend and engaging on this. So I, I think that part is happening. Uh, the second thing that needs to happen is you need to secure your network because this vulnerability really cannot be identified through traditional scanners. 
the first thing you need to do is check your logs, go make sure you're not under active attack. If you are, respond to that attack first. We are seeing that right now uh, of the major companies, particularly in defense industrial base. Uh, they're taking the appropriate actions, I think, in large measure to make sure that if they have ongoing attacks, those are being repelled. Of course, without a reporting requirement, the federal government will never know about that, but that's a digression. Uh, the next thing you need to do after that is you need to be working with your vendors because the lack of S-bombs, right, the, the DIB companies, the government itself really has no idea just how exposed it is or it isn't. Uh, so you've got to engage with your vendors to see where there are patches available. Fortunately, Apache has come out with a patch for this. Now you just need to figure out where you have this software. Uh, and that's where we at Fortress have engaged. So thus far, we as a company have identified more than 250,000 pieces of software that have this vulnerability. Uh, that, so you need to have a partner who can create the S-bombs for you that can help you to really do the triage to say, hey, this percentage of my network is secure. This percentage of my network is not. Now let's go act on that based on the creation of those S-bombs. So those are really the things companies need to be doing. I'll tell you, Vago, in, in sort of the, the uh, process here, companies are really at stage one, stage two. Let's wake everybody up and get them going. And hey, let's check our logs to make sure we're not under active attack. If you needed a better example of why that reporting requirement is critical and why S-bombs are critical, it doesn't get any better than this, does it? This is it. You know, sometimes I wonder if, if I'm not a Cassandra, right? I'm always warning, hey, we got to have these things. We got to do these things. We can only stomach these type of attacks so many times before really we're going to lose our way of life. We're going to feel the tremors from this one uh, and, and the aftershocks from this one for certainly months, probably a year or more to follow. And hopefully that'll put people on the right footing to, to get them in the right place. John, thanks very much again. It's an absolute pleasure having you on the program. And we'll have you back on again. Uh, if you can join us next week, would, would love that uh, because this is an important issue uh, and, and would like to get your feel sort of a, a week after this uh, to, see, to see where we stand. Thanks again. Well, thank you so much for having me, Vago. I will come back next week with some updates for you and hopefully we will be at a much better place then. And a quick word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. And joining us as he does every week to discuss the week ahead is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago. Wouldn't be Monday uh, without you and having an opportunity uh, to look uh, ahead at the week. Another uh, fascinating uh, note, uh, as uh, our audience knows, yesterday on the Business Roundtable, yesterday we discussed uh, the success of the F-35 in uh, Finland. Looks like Canada is going to be going in that direction. Switzerland was a big surprise because there was this sense that uh, uh, the Swiss were going to go for uh, a different airplane, perhaps the the French jet originally having picked uh, the Gripen, certainly a bad, bad uh, string of luck, not just uh, for the Gripen and for Saab, but also for the F-18 uh, that is placed out of some of these competitions as well. Obviously, the Gripen is still in the Canada competition. Walk, walk us through what, in your mind, this means uh, for the F-35, what it means for Lockheed Martin, what it means for the United States, uh, and what it means uh, for the for the program and the production run. Well, look, I think particularly with the Swiss and Finnish wins, you know, they, they were arguably probably two of the tougher campaigns that Lockheed Martin faced with the F-35. Uh, they're neutral countries. You know, they, they hadn't been part of the industrial partnership on the F-35 program. And, you know, they weren't countries that you necessarily thought as um, 
certainly Switzerland that would need a kind of a frontline fifth generation fighter aircraft. And yet Lockheed uh, F-35 was selected in both instances. So I think it says, it certainly says something about the, the assessments of the costs, not just the unit procurement costs, but the life cycle costs of the F-35, which have been controversial, but <clears throat> we've now had, you know, yet two more ministries make a decision. They've looked at the data and for all the controversy about sustainment costs for the F-35, um, it's still deemed affordable relative to some of the other competing aircraft that are out there. And, and I think that may raise a question about, so why does this seem to be an issue with the U.S. fleet and not something that's preventing other countries from buying the F-35? Maybe, maybe it's something that, you know, <clears throat> there needs to be closer attention to how the U.S. may be sustaining its F-35s. Um, the DOD is sustaining its F-35s. Um, it, it is, you know, kind of, the, to me, almost the end of the line for the FAA team. <clears throat> They've got the German selection, although there's no contract on that. But, you know, um, these European replacement programs, they're, they're replacing older older generation F-18s. And Boeing just has not gotten a, a dog that's hunting in that particular um, field. Uh, you know, the, the EF has, has just not been competitive in these competitions. I suppose the other thing it should say is, <clears throat> look, you know, for both Tempest and the SCAF program, uh, Europe's kind of missing a replacement cycle here for combat aircraft. The Rafale certainly has done well uh, in, in Croatia, uh, Greece, you know, they're getting secondhand aircraft. And then the UAE decision is, is positive. But, <clears throat> you know, these replacement program decisions in Europe those countries aren't going to be back in the market for new combat aircraft for probably 30 years from the time they take delivery of their, their F-35s. And so it, it's going to place more focus and attention, from my view, on you've got to have a credible European um, military aircraft industrial base going forward, but it's probably going to have to look more internationally than at simple domestic needs and you know thinking more about the replacement of Eurofighters and Rafales as they age out too. Um, as as we discussed a little bit uh, yesterday, I want to get your sense. So does this change Saab's uh, vector right within the Tempest program? And conversely, doesn't this give Dassault an even stronger hand in the, in the SCAF program, right? As these two sort of parallel programs move ahead, uh, right? I mean, the, the Swedes have been sort of in, but the sense of not in, Right, uh, because obviously they feel like they've got their own combat aviation industry. Do you? Do you? Uh, but you know, I mean, Sash pointed out that you know, Saab still has a key uh, position on the T seven uh, yeah. trainer program, which is going to be very good for aer aeronautics overall, uh, and 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 the, the the future of of the company, which is very diversified, and certainly in land weapons, uh, the giraffe radar, you know, Carl Gustav, and other sort of munitions. From your standpoint, does this change the sort of competitive international dynamic at all? Um, look, I think had had uh, they won Finland, it would have you know probably doubled their production rate of grip and ease in Sweden. Uh, I, I don't think there was this big a uh, likely competition that they could have won. You mentioned you know they are one of two companies um, that have been that are being evaluated by the Canadians. I would be shocked uh, if Canada selected the Gripen. Um, India is potentially still out there. Um, 
you know, but, but I think that may prove to be a long shot. And then, then we're back to kind of these smaller niche markets. So they can keep, they'll have a production line open through the balance of this decade, just fulfilling the needs of the Swedish armed forces. And then some of these other niche opportunities that come up to your point. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that'll probably be the bigger issue is so what's, what's, what's their role and how does this, uh, how does the Tempest program proceed? What, you know, what happens with SCAF? You know, is there really, should there be a single European solution or, you know, that, that would satisfy the industrial bases of all these countries or, you know, you have two competing products and then you, you also have to, you know, <laughs> dial in what, what the Japanese and the Koreans are going to do as well as the Russians and the Chinese from a global market standpoint. So it's not as if the market's going to get less competitive um, the F-35 certainly has now got, got more legs. And I, I think the over-under had been, uh, you know, can they see a production rate, rate higher than 156 airplanes in 2023? Um, and, you know, depending on what happens with Canada, Spain, Singapore, um, Greece, you know, some of the other likely buyers of the aircraft, uh, it, it's pretty easy to pencil out, um, you know, a skyline where they're above that 156 rate uh, in the back part of this decade. And obviously it's going to depend on what the U.S. does as well, too. Well, uh, but obviously, right, I mean, the Greeks did go with an F, uh, with a Rafale solution uh, for, for the time being, even with used jets, right? I mean, right. so that complicates that uh, that decision making. And, and look, patience pays off. Uh, Dassault has been working the UAE uh, for the past three decades, uh, and, and clearly that paid off for them as well. And, and I think it's interesting signaling. Uh, on the part of the UAE, right, that that we've uh, signed a deal on F-35. We'll see whether or not you guys come across. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously they've got an option. And um, I would agree, Bago. I think the really interesting thing is, you know, when you see countries that have historically <coughs> split their, their air fleet needs. So Greece had operated a mix of uh, U.S. and French-provided air, uh, French-built aircraft, and um, the UAE also had the same thing. They've they've had uh, F-16s and Mirage 2000s. Right. Um, so, you know, where you kind of look for, you know, are, and a lot of the initial F-35 wins have been countries <clears throat> that had selected the F-16 uh, when it came, frankly, around to replacing uh, earlier Dassault Mirage uh, variants. So. Um, I'm thinking Belgium and, and uh, um, Belgium in particular, but um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, maybe the open question here is really, you know, of, of any country that probably any, of any company <clears throat> that faces a, a different landscape in the future would be Boeing now. And that's just because of the F-18, the, the interesting variable is what will they do with the T7? You know, <clears throat> can they morph that into a lower cost fighter attack airplane and make that a plausible right. uh, option for, for countries that, you know, don't need or can't afford a $80 million unit price airplane? You had a fascinating chart uh, about Chinese uh, uh, incursions into Taiwanese airspace. Um, you know, it's, it said Capital Alpha Research. H how'd you put the chart together and, and why did you put it together and why did you think it was so interesting? Well, I put it together. It's actually data <clears throat> that is released. Uh, the, the Taiwanese Ministry of National Defense releases uh, 
They put a press release every time there's an air defense uh, identification zone incursion, and they list the aircraft type and the numbers that uh, the, the uh, Chinese are, are sending to their air defense identification zone. So I think it was just interesting. You know, I kind of live in a data world and, and you know, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's kind of an analyst background. <clears throat> you like to look at numbers and, and part of it is just to put some of these incursions in perspective. Um, you know, there are individual days. Of, you can look at it on a daily basis. And then, you know, the chart that I published had shown it on a monthly basis for 2021. There's some pretty big packages occasionally that the, the Chinese throw at the Taiwanese ADIZ. Um, a lot of these, you know, are just routine when I call surveillance flights. They involve Y8 um, anti submarine warfare aircraft or <clears throat> Y8 EW aircraft. Um, but, but, you know, every once in a while you see these big packages. And there was one in November, they threw a tanker in, which was kind of intriguing. Uh, they've been using right. their KJ 500, their airborne uh, surveillance aircraft more often. So, you know, the observation that I made was <clears throat> December, this was data through the 11th. Um, you know, you've had 43 aircraft types um, in incursions through the first uh, 11 days of the month. <clears throat> and that already, you know, exceeded the, the total monthly totals for July, August, and May and February. And <clears throat> you're probably going to exceed, you know, the March numbers uh, as well. So the, the Chinese are still very active um, in, in these ADIZ flights. And uh, very quickly on the NDAA before we uh, go to the, uh, the three, two, one, and, and very quickly on the NDAA, obviously the, the House has passed it. It's under consideration in the Senate. Um, Michael Herson and Dove Zakheim joined us on, on Friday. Anything you want to add to that discussion before we go to a quick tour of the week ahead and what the audience should be paying attention to? No, I mean, I think it's kind of a done deal this week, the Senate. You know, Michael pointed out correctly, it really was very strong bipartisan point bipartisan support with the House passage. I expect the same from the Senate. Um, you know, the interesting thing, from the, the authorization numbers are nice. You know, it's really appropriations are going to be what, what matters for the contractors. <clears throat> and there's some policy things. You know, maybe the most interesting thing was uh, the, the reform of the, uh, or a panel to look at reforming the DOD budget process. Um, you know, my only regret is I don't think they're supposed to report out until 2023. Uh, I think you could get something like that done by mid 2022. I don't know why it's taking so long. So, um, but it, but it's it's time. It's it's well overdue that we take a look at at how the budget process works. Uh, well, I mean, that's that's for sure because unfortunately, even though you and I have been doing this for a long time, it's staggering how long. The process has been thoroughly dysfunctional, and we're we've been living in a you know a not a regular order universe, which is which is just absurd. I mean, it's great we're going to have an NDAA, but that NDAA is really late at this point when it's passing in December. Yeah. Um, uh, very quickly, uh, week ahead we have the commandant of the Marine Corps, 
speaking, we've got uh, Cobra Harigian, uh, the United States Air Force four-star, who's the commander of U.S. Air Forces uh, Europe, uh, and, and a whole bunch of other interesting things. Walk us through who's where and what folks should be paying attention to. Well, yeah, it's going to be a fairly quiet week, <clears throat> quite frankly. You know, the Commandant, I think, had also spoken at, at the Reagan Defense Forum. So, you know, you always look for little incremental pieces. I'm frankly much more interested right now about what's going on in Europe um, with Russia and Ukraine. And I'm also very interested in, in the status of the JCPO talks with Iran, which don't seem to be going well either. And I, I think, you know, you potentially <clears throat> are moving to a setup for 2022 where it's gonna be a very dynamic year from a geopolitical standpoint. And any other uh, events folks should be tuning into this week? Um, there are some smaller ones. Vago, you know, AUVSI is doing kind of their 2022 outlook. That's all things unmanned or un uninhabited. There's a Brookings event kind of on the fall of the Soviet Union, the 30 year anniversary of that, that, that may be interesting background. But it's been there. Um, some other smaller events, uh, Middle East Institute on non state warfare. Um, but no, I, I think these are going to be kind of fairly routine. Um, background. And, and, you know, it's that time of year when a lot of the heavy lifting is really done for defense um, in Congress. And uh, we have to wait to see how appropriations shape up, but that that's not going to get resolved. Certainly not this week. Byron, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on and look forward to having you on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.